You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. The moratorium on evictions has ended. There's a housing shortage without a definite answer as to when or if it'll be solved and median home prices have increased to the point that even dual-income middle-class families are struggling. So where does that leave the unsheltered and low-income population? And what is in the works to help them? The previous episode of Unaffordable focused on the middle class. This episode focuses on homeless and extremely low-income individuals or families in search of a home in Arizona, including the challenges they face and where they can go to find assistance in getting an affordable place to live. Bonnie Jers is a 32-year-old woman living in alleyways and tunnels in Arizona. She's been homeless for three years. As I'm speaking with her, she's in a crowded alley with her boyfriend and a small homeless community she found trying to stay warm. The police said that we could stay here as long as we don't um, bother the next hotel over because they get food in the morning. So as long as we just stay away from there, we'll be fine. In 2020, there was a count of 7,419 people experiencing homelessness in Phoenix. That's a 119% increase in just five years. Bonnie had previously been evicted from an apartment and then lived in affordable housing for a year. I lost my job and then my boyfriend was living on Social Security at the time. And um, it was just really hard to keep on bills and everything. In these last three years, Bonnie hasn't had success with receiving housing vouchers or assistance with finding shelter or affordable housing due to long waiting lists and an increasing homeless population. She says she has untreated mental illnesses and medications she's not taking. And for food? I just ask people for money when I I can when I'm really hungry. But Bonnie is hoping for change and hoping for help. She says she won't give up. I still have hope. You know, I'm not going to be in this situation forever. And Bonnie's boyfriend, Jackson Steele, who has been homeless for about six years, is trying to find a safe place where they can stay. But when I'm taking care of somebody else, I need to get them into comfortable housing. trying to do now with Bonnie since she decided she wanted to come out here with me. As of right now, they have a tent to help give them cover and found some things to help make the situation more comfortable. Well, now we have some blankets, and we found a mattress last night that, by a donation box, and we took that home on a shopping cart and threw it over the wall so nobody else would see because they'll take it, and we put that in our tent. Before setting up the tent in the alleyway, they were staying in a tunnel, which they had quickly realized wasn't going to work. We got washed away. We were in the tunnel, and like we woke up, and it felt like somebody was pushing on us, and we were in the middle of like a flash flood type thing. And I could hear the water, you know, and then, like, just woke up soaking wet, (laughs) getting pushed down the river. It kind of sucked. But you could die from that, so. Jackson mentions drug use as a common side effect of being homeless. Whether drugs are part of the reason for becoming homeless or not, he says it makes it difficult for addicts in the unsheltered population to stop using. Like, drugs, drugs aren't the problem drugs are a side effect like most people out here use because that's how they deal with being homeless like if you took all the things 
from away from anybody else who's like has had housing and stuff their whole life and support from their family take all that away and throw you out in the middle of the street you know you're scared alone and you have nothing and probably hopeless at that point you know you're you're going to try to numb it somehow and that's what people do Jackson is currently on the waiting list for shelters and housing in Maricopa, Pima, and Yavapai counties, but doesn't have any idea when or if he'll be chosen to stay at any of the places he's reached out to. You know, like, obviously it's the people who are most in need ahead of the other people, but, uh, you know, they said sometimes it takes six months to a couple of years, and, you know, six years is where I'm at right now, so... I can't, I don't think it's there's really any, uh, it's almost like a random lottery the way I see it. But just like Bonnie, Jackson remains hopeful and positive. I like keep, I like being around friendly people and, you know, being optimistic because, you know, everything looks really bad unless you look at it in a positive way. You just gotta, you just gotta enjoy the little things. One of the nonprofits offering help to homeless and low-income families with obtaining affordable housing is a foundation called Save the Family. Save the Family has been around since the 80s. The organization mostly focuses on working with homeless families, meaning families with children who are under 18 years old. It also has a grant that works with chronically homeless and single women, which is the only time the group deviates from working with families. On top of assisting with housing, Save the Family also helps with job placement and offers services specific to youths, veterans, and victims of domestic violence. It also helps families around the holidays. I attended a Thanksgiving event where Save the Family passed out platters of food. What's going on today is our Thanksgiving sponsorship distribution and drop-off. So community, over 300 community members are dropping off their Thanksgiving baskets of non-perishable food items, uh, a gift card for the turkey, ham, or roast beef. And um, it's, it's just, you know, it's a wonderful time of year, and we're getting started today. That's Greg Boone, the Chief Development Officer. He was with CEO Jackie Taylor. With poverty comes food insecurity, and we do everything we can to help alleviate that. We have a pantry upstairs that families can access if they need it. On top of providing families with food, they were also able to help more families find affordable housing this year than usual. Because we have received additional grant monies to help with eviction prevention as well as expanded rapid rehousing, we're serving probably about close to over 120 families more yep. than we have in the past. So numbers are, are really large this year. Housing costs are escalating and many families saw a 20% increase in rent this year, while wages are stagnating. And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, an eviction moratorium was issued to help stop the spread of the virus. This prohibited landlords from removing qualified tenants from rental properties. At the end of August, the moratorium was lifted. You know, I had mixed feelings on the moratorium, uh, to be honest with you. Um, on the negative side, I, I was concerned that 
families would just fall farther and farther behind. We, we kind of referred to it as kicking the can down the road because there was no forgiveness of what was due. So you just hope and pray that those families were able to connect with agencies like ours that were doing eviction prevention. Um, however, to get the eviction prevention dollars out, we had to be able to draw the lines to COVID. And in some cases, uh, that just wasn't possible. On the other hand... So the positive of the moratorium was it did slow down uh, the numbers, the extreme high numbers of evictions that were happening. So it really was a yin and a yang kind of effect. Um, again, I think that the, the, the saving grace in all this is hoping that those families that have fallen behind really work hard to connect with agencies like ours that are providing the eviction prevention assistance. Jackie told me that a handful of families they supported stopped communicating with the leasing manager and wouldn't respond to phone calls after the moratorium went into play. Ultimately, that led to some evictions. It's very devastating. And I think in this field, it's not unlike health care. You know, when uh, the healthcare professional wants nothing more than to get the patient healthy and keep them alive, it's the same thing in our work. We want nothing more than to help the family keep them, get them housed and keep them housed. If you're interested in helping out Save the Family, your donations are eligible for a dollar-to-dollar -dollar charitable tax credit up to $400 for individuals, and up to $800 for married couples filing jointly. Dave Brown is the CEO of Valley Leadership, which is a 501c3 nonprofit based here in Phoenix that reaches the entire state through leadership development programming. He's also board chair of Home Matters to Arizona, which is the first statewide initiative of the National Home Matters movement. And Home Matters for Arizona has a fund that's utilized by many nonprofits in the Valley. It's been used to help nonprofits like Trellis, which is previously mentioned in the series. And Trellis is currently breaking ground on a piece of land in Phoenix's Sunny Slope community near the light rail line. However, even with nonprofits doing what they can during this time, David Brown says there's many more seeking help now than there were just a few years ago. And there's a lot that needs to be done quickly. I think there's good consensus around the fact that we are at a crisis and what we do over the next 12, 24, 36 months will determine, I think, our fate and that it will go the, the way of the, the coast cities. And you think of uh, Los Angeles and their skid row and San Francisco and Portland, uh, Seattle, or we'll be able to manage it a little better. I think with all of Arizona's increasing growth, um, we have our work cut out for us. And David doesn't think of building housing as a way to shelter the homeless, low-income, or the struggling middle class. What he wants Arizona to accomplish is building homes, not housing, to hopefully help improve the quality of life. And let's start talking about how we can produce more of those homes rather than a sterile four walls and a roof unit of housing. No one says they go home at night to lay their head in their bed uh, in their housing. They talk about it when they go home uh, and feel good and safe in their home. And in his response to the eviction moratorium. Um, but anytime you have uh, a market like we currently have where market level uh, retail uh, apartments can go for market rate at a much different clip than that what they were before the pandemic, 
you're going to have people whose rent goes up and either they can't pay and they try to find somewhere else uh, or they get evicted in a state like Arizona and in a region like Maricopa County, where if you're evicted, uh, good luck trying to find somewhere else. And absolutely all the luck in the world to try and find somewhere where your rent was would stay the same. It's just not it's just not possible now. So Home Matters has developed a strategic plan to rally Arizona around the fact that the state needs more homes and is brainstorming as to where and how these homes will be built. Over the last 18 months, Home Matters has done three rounds of funding. Almost $3 million has gone out to eight projects across the state. Uh, that includes the Phoenix area, Yuma, Tucson, uh, White Mountain area, and a couple places in Flagstaff. Uh, and that grant funding is kind of the last money in to finish some of these projects. So you have projects that um, would not maybe have been built without some of this support. Even with the funded projects and money raised, David says it's going to take a lot more money and resources to catch up and solve the issue. So there's there's projects sprouting out all over the place here um, that are exciting, that are, are meeting the need. It's just a fraction, though. Uh, we need many, many, many multiples of millions of dollars in order to really get ahead of this. Again, we're not going to solve it, uh, but if we can kind of stem the tide a little bit as we think more uh, long term and what our solution might be, we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance of not becoming California. And as far as Arizona's future goes, David is uncertain the state will be able to solve the affordability problem. Yeah, I unfortunately can't go all in one way or the other. I think it's going to be a we'll see, but we have a we have a moment to really do something about it still. In the last episode of Unaffordable, I mentioned the Arizona Center for Civic Leadership webinar that I attended about affordable housing and homelessness. One of the speakers who talked about the plans to solve the issue of unaffordable housing was Tom Simplot, director of the Arizona Department of Housing. The department's primary responsibility is called balance of state. While Maricopa County and Pima County work to finance development of new housing in their metro areas, the Department of Housing is tasked with helping to develop rural housing. The federal low-income housing tax credits and the new state housing tax credits flow through the Department of Housing. There's 9% and there's 4% low-income housing credits that have been in place since 1986 after President Ronald Reagan signed the executive order. Tom Simplot refers to these tax credits as the most successful method of financing, especially for workforce housing, which is housing affordable to households earning between 60 and 120% of area median income, supportive housing for those suffering from chronic physical or mental health issues, and housing for extremely low-income individuals. Why? Because when you look at development, uh, land costs don't don't change just because a development uh, is workforce or supportive housing. Labor costs to build that new community aren't any less because it's workforce or affordable housing. So given that financing gap, the low-income housing tax credit program is essential in order to build new units and has built millions of units across the country and here in Arizona. So for rural areas of Arizona, the Department of Housing created the Qualified Allocation Plan, or QAP. And that QAP dictates how our low-income housing tax credits will be distributed here in Arizona. Every state does this. We are in the final stages of completing our QAP, and uh, and we are uh, we have tried to be vigilant and listen to the development community, for profit and not for profit, by listening to them to ascertain what 
needs to be in that QAP to foster more development in our rural areas. The QAP allows for developers to actually secure projects. For example, Native American Connections was a qualifying applicant that originally was limited to using the low-income tax credits to build one project that was eventually expanded to one in a rural area and one in an urban area. However, there's still that looming issue of supply and demand that somehow needs to be overcome. Uh, we know there's a housing shortage in Sedona, but Sedona's not alone. We know there's a housing shortage in Flagstaff, Kingman. The mayor of Kingman told me that they have a developer ready to build three to 400 new units, uh, but they don't have the people power there to actually build it. That's a problem. And there's a lot that goes into the logistics of when and after a project is approved. We have to be thinking holistically about not just the financing tools, but also about how our local jurisdictions approve zoning uh, and, and building entitlements. And, and we need our local jurisdictions to actually ask the big question, when approving a new, uh, say, a new distribution center with 300 new jobs, the next question should be, and where will those people live? Those are the questions that need to be embedded in our consciousness as we tackle this issue statewide. Diana Devine, president and CEO of Native American Connections, is another speaker from the webinar. She is working to find permanent supportive housing for chronic homeless. There's a, you know, a very large homeless housing community, provider community, as well as people that are working on homeless housing and are keenly aware that um, mental health issues, uh, the domestic violence issues, the uh, chronic medical conditions that have uh, come to light, particularly during COVID, are part of the, you know, the homeless housing um, issue. They coordinated an entry system at a large shelter in downtown Phoenix to get people in touch with organizations like UMOM which provides supportive services for nearly 700 individuals experiencing homelessness. And as it was previously mentioned, because of the low-income housing tax credit program, Native American Connections can now build permanent supportive housing to help combat chronic homelessness. But on top of building homes for the unsheltered, the organization is also focused on health and mental health. And then that intersection between uh, mental health and, and homelessness and working with the um, the health plans, the mental health, behavioral health plans um, as integrated providers. Um, we're, we're both a health care provider providing uh, those mental health services as well as a housing provider. There's other organizations like ours, and we're beginning to partner across the, across the board. And speaking of health care, programs like Medicaid have helped many nonprofits and coalitions to work toward reaching their goals. Patricia Duarte, in a previous interview, mentioned the help Trellis has received from Medicaid and other health care providers. With their help and added funding, Trellis was able to spur more affordable housing for Arizona's rapidly growing population of homeless and low-income residents. And United Alone helped fund a West Phoenix affordable housing project with 100 new apartments and support for residents. So with a lot of new projects and plans just sprouting up, we'll have to wait patiently to see the outcome. But at this moment of planning, donating, and hoping, there's a chance for Arizona. A moment where we can come together and make a difference. A moment where we can help others and raise each other up.
You just listened to an entire podcast episode about unaffordable housing in Arizona. So this issue must be of some importance to you. To learn more about issues with unaffordability and the organizations we profiled, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. Tell all of your friends to check us out too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Hear Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by the Nina Mason Polium Charitable Trust. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Madison Mulvihill. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>